Welcome to episode 92 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen. This week we brought back Mark Metternich and we talked all about creating fine art photography prints. We went really deep into the rabbit hole to talk about field techniques, color management, sharpening, pretty much everything you would ever want to know about creating prints. Uh, There's even more this week over on Patreon for subscribers at the $5 a month and higher levels. Mark and I talk all about why you should print your work and all about the fine art photography market. And uh, it was really interesting, so tune in. Uh, Before we get started, I wanted to tell you about this week's sponsors for the podcast. First, let me tell you about ArcPanel. I know every photographer processes their images, be it a light touch to ensure the image matches reality or a heavy artistic uh, post-processing technique. I personally process mostly using with luminosity masks and I know it took me a while to get on board with luminosity masks but uh because that can be super intimidating uh but you can build them manually which is slow and prone to errors or you can use luminosity masking panels so let me introduce you to our newest sponsor of the show arc panel it is created by one of the podcast listeners and one of our patreon supporters anton everin uh, he built uh, this software from the ground up. He's a software developer. He's a landscape photographer, and it focuses on simplicity and speed. I tried it myself, and I personally found it to be the fastest and most intuitive panel out there. Um, and I've been using TK panels and all kinds of stuff. Um, I really like it. Arc panel provides 16-bit luminosity and saturation masks for lights, darks, midtones, and zones with options to refine and apply them to any kind of adjustment layer. There's also a free extra tab with frequency separation, Orton effect, and dodge burn. Arc Panel has a free trial, so you could try it before buying. And Patreon supporters of the podcast get a special discount, so head on over there and check that out. You can try it for free by going to arcpanel.averin.photo. That's A-R-C-P-A-N-E-L dot a-v-e-r-i-n dot photo Uh, the website has full feature descriptions and a growing list of tutorials all right next up i wanted to take a moment to reintroduce one of my favorite websites to listeners nature photographers network or npn for short if you're like me you're probably tired of the empty comments and the rat race for likes over on social media you find yourself craving a bit more from your landscape photography experience You want to share your work and have it truly appreciated for what it is. Maybe you want to get really in-depth and helpful critique on your images from some of the world's best photographers. NPN is where you need to go, trust me. Not only does NPN have an incredible community of like-minded photographers, it has one of the most useful, helpful, and truly genuine critique forums around. I have learned so much and have improved quite a bit by posting my images there and absorbing the feedback from other users on my images and other people's images. Additionally, NPN has hired some of the best nature landscape photography writers in the industry, including many former guests of the podcast like Guy Tal, Charlotte Gibb, Sarah Marino, Eric Bennett, and lots of others. Uh, These writers are creating exclusive content for the community on NPN, which is both inspirational and action-oriented. 
it will improve your photography. Check it out. Head over to naturephotographers.network. Well, special thanks to our Patreon supporters and podcast producers who are helping out at the $20 a month level or higher over on Patreon. Uh, Michael Howard, Jack Curran, Eric Stenslin, Chris Rice, Jeff Peterson, Charlotte Gibb, Jason Matias, Anton Everine, Laurie Berenson, and David Kingham. Thank you all so much. I truly appreciate it. Let's get on to the show. All right. Well, Mark Metternich, it is cool to have you back on the podcast. Um, we had you on originally back in August of 2017 on episode 15. And yeah. here you are for episode 92. Yeah. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for allowing me this awesome privilege. I love doing these. Yeah, dude. And um, I'm not going to lie. When you reached out to me to do the podcast, um, I mean, I'm in the process of like, totally revamping a lot of my images and getting ready to release a new website and totally revamping my printing. So I was like, oh, nice. I'm going to totally take advantage of this and pick his brain. So <laughs> I'll give you all, all that I can. Cool, man. <laughs> a lot, I, I really do get a lot of pleasure out of, you know, helping people with, with some of those things that they might be doing wrong that where it makes a really big difference. Yeah. Well, I guess before we get into all that craziness, like, uh, what have you kind of, what have you been up to since we last talked? Okay. So that was over a year ago. Yeah, man. Yeah. Um, and we must, I don't know. I remember even what we talked about. It was probably printing or something, but, um, well, everything has changed. I was living out of my car 300 days a year, doing nothing but photographing and leading workshops. I did that for like a few years. And then I met somebody online and I, I, I had been through a really bad divorce and wasn't planning on ever being in another relationship. So I was just going to be married to nature and, (laughs) (laughs) and, uh, I ended up just, it was coincidental. I I had never even been on a website before. I I had no interest in dating, but I met this uh, girl and, uh, I'm married now. Sweet. And I have I have three stepsons, and I have never had kids before. And oh, I'm, wow. in a, I'm in a close knit family, and that's not how my family was. And on top of that, um, I live in Florida. There you go. I mean, yeah, and a lot of people don't know that, but some people are figuring it out. You know, I'm from Oregon, the Pacific Northwest, mountains, and everything. And so my entire absolute life has completely changed. But in terms of, you know, doing photography for a living and the workshops and everything, everything is still just as it is. I just have to drive a lot more or fly a lot more. Yeah. But, uh, to like the icing on that cake, or I guess silver lining, um, you're closer to those really sweet Bayou locations that I see people shooting a lot now, like David Thompson and, Oh uh, yeah. Which is pretty sweet. David knocks it out of the ballpark and he's got me drooling with his imagery. I was supposed to do that, but I drove all the way across the United States from Oregon back to Florida right at the peak. And I just was comatose (laughs) for about a week. And I was like, you know what, I got to get back to, you know, processing photos and stuff. So I am going to do that next year. It's really close. I'm in, I'm in Jacksonville, Florida. So that's North Florida and I'm right by the Georgia uh, border, so I can just head to 
you know, any of those places really quick. And I have a kayak. So oh, yeah, dude, like every time <laughs> I see those Bayou shots, I'm just like, Oh, that is really cool. Like those are, I don't know, like they don't seem to get a lot of photography love and David Thompson and others have just started crushing it. So anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if, if you're here, let me know and, and I'll, I'll go with you. I'm yeah, also also seascapes too. Um, although yeah. Florida's got some pretty, I, I, I love seascapes so much. I, I, when I first started getting serious about photography, like, you know, 14 years ago or something like that, I was hitting the Oregon coast like crazy. And people started thinking of me as a seascape photographer. Well, then I moved to Vegas and pretty much from then all the way till now, I've never gotten back like really close to the ocean to where, you know, I could start hitting the seascapes and I, I can't wait. It's harder here though, because the tides are just super mellow and you really have to hit them at, you know, like, you know, when there's a storm coming in or, right. you know, with the high tides are hitting certain things and it's very hard to find really great foregrounds, but I have found them and where they are in Florida. And so that's my kind of my new thing I'm excited about. Yeah. I just, um, a couple of days ago, got back from a trip to Kauai oh. and, I tried to do a fair amount of seascape photography, but um, never really had super great. You got great... caught up partying. Well, that is actually true. <laughs> um, I did a lot of drinking. That's true. Um, but, uh, you know, like there wasn't a ton of really great um, sunsets or sunrises, which is fine. I mean, I'm not picky, but uh, I don't know. Like, I was hoping to get more seascapes than I did, but it was still oh. a really good time. Yeah. Um, how, how long were you there? I was there for 10 days and I did uh, two days backpacking uh, down into Waimea Canyon, which oh, was nice. really a really unique experience, kind of hiking in the jungle and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I got super enamored with um, the forest floors. Like I was shooting all kinds mm. of crazy abstracts and stuff like that, which is, I'm getting more and more into that. So anyways, yeah, it was a good time for sure. And then I did a helicopter trip, which just like I oh, got, nice. I did a, I purposely booked a late afternoon, like the last flight. So the, you know, the light was really good on the poly coast. Right. And, oh, oh, I came away with some stunning stuff. I haven't posted any of it yet, but it's, it's un unbelievable. <laughs> oh, nice. Did you get to like hang out of the helicopter? I've done yeah, that before. Yeah, doors off. Like, yeah, it was legit. Oh, man. Uh, how about uh, camera shake? Um, so I figured it out, dude. Like, fortunately, um, I had Scott McCook on the podcast a few weeks ago, and um, he gave me a lot of pointers on um, settings and things like that. And then I actually reached out to uh, Ryan Smith for some advice on focal length because it's a little bit different because they get so close. So you kind of want more of a wide angle for that particular oh, um, yeah. trip. So, yeah, I did really well. I took a actually used a 21 millimeter prime and I was mm, shooting nice. on auto ISO and like, you know, like one one thousandth of a second round in there and everything came out super sharp. So, yeah, I was nice. pretty happy with it. Yeah. Yeah, I went ill-prepared to the Great Barrier Reef, and that wind ruined every picture except for two. Yeah. And I um, I did shoot at like 2.8 is what I was told. I don't like shooting at 2.8 very much, but I'd rather shoot like at F8. But um, 
yeah, it ruined everything. But it was sure was fun though. It was so beautiful. Oh Probably god, like, isn't it awesome? <laughs> oh yeah, I, I I literally, you know, I have fear about flying sometimes. I have some anxiety issues there. I was so just in bliss by the beauty that I really actually said to myself, you know, if this thing just went right down right now, I don't even think I'd even feel a thing. I'd still be smiling all the way. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. That's what I thought. I mean, this is paradise, you know? Yeah, man. I, like the whole trip, um, one of my really good friends was sitting next to me in the helicopter on the other side and my wife and son were in the front and like, mm. I just kept looking at him with my eyes wide open and my jaw dropped. Like some of the stuff we were seeing was just mind blowing. And of course we had really good lights and, um, yeah, it was just, it was a great experience. So I'm excited to work those images and share them. So I look yeah. forward to seeing them. Cool, man. Well, maybe before I start working those image hardcore, we can, we can talk a little bit about, uh, some advice you would have for, um, for print. So I, like I had said to you before, I'm actually in the process of revamping my website, reworking a lot of files, and I'm going to be printing a lot of large format um, mm -hmm, images good. and um, kind of taking more of the fine art approach and doing limited edition prints and things like that. So nice. this is a very timely uh, conversation for me. And I know a lot of the listeners out there are getting more into that as well. So um, yeah, that's... it seems to be growing a lot, actually. I'm surprised. Yeah, perfect timing is I'm sure like I'm sure the uh, I'm sure I'll get like two sales. So it's it'll be great. But uh, I'm just being sarcastic. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, let's talk about like, how do you what is your approach to um, mastering fine art print? Wow, that's a loaded question. <laughs> um, I could answer it in about 16 to 18 hours of curriculum that we teach in our ultimate fine art printmaking workshop in Vegas. Well, obviously we don't have 16 <laughs> hours. I know. That's what I mean. It's like, holy smokes. Like people are even like, well, can I just get that on your video tutorial? And I'm like, well, yeah, but there's so much to it. So what we need to do is we need to get into some specifics. So do you want me to just throw out like what I think is like kind of a hierarchical thing to be thinking about? I think it would be cool to maybe talk about uh, like the general fundamentals of um, detail mastery to start with. Like, I think that's a huge thing that okay. a lot of people worry about. I know me specifically, okay. I've been working a lot of images lately and like, you know, your print looks a lot different when it's uh you know, 16 by 24 instead of oh, a 40 yeah. by 60. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that happens to your photo when you're printing that big. So let's yeah, definitely. About, uh, let's first talk about those fundamentals. Okay. I think uh, if you don't mind, um, I would first regress back to a little bit of color management and Perfect. then go yeah. into the detail. The biggest thing... I mean, there's so much to it. There's all these nuances that you have to pull together to get a true, you know, master print, uh, masterpiece print where, you know, every single thing is absolutely perfect. But the basics, one of the main things is most people are working on their photos, not calibrated or kind of calibrated or calibrated for web display viewing. And I try to exaggerate it just so that people understand, but a print is nothing like, you know, LEDs or LCDs, you know, flashing light into our eyes. Nothing. It's nothing like that. So the first 
assumption that it seems that we all have is like, well, why aren't my prints turning out like my monitor? Or they just don't have that, you know, pop or vibrancy or three-dimensionality or whatever. And the main deal is we need to calibrate our monitors specifically for print parameters. And mm. if people start doing that, they're going to start. I mean, even I'm not even talking about using an ICC profile and modeling, you know, the printmaking that you're actually doing or what color space you use and a whole bunch of other stuff. But if you just did that one thing, you darkened your monitor down, you doled down your monitor then ran your calibration so that your colors are accurate within that luminosity. And then another one is work on a white background or canvas background when you're in Photoshop or you know Lightroom or whatever you use. Um, you're going to now start producing prints that are much more vibrant and toward you know the look that you're wanting to get, which is you know an LCD look right off of your wall. Right. So that's 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 one of the things there. Um, and we talked about all the details about that. But my general parameters that I mentioned in almost all of my video tutorials, I don't I don't go into the depths of it, except for the one that's you know specifically about that. But I tell people that in a uh, semi diffused room, that's very general. OK, mm -hmm. but I don't work in a room that's real bright. And I don't work in the dark. I work in a, I really control my room uh, lighting. I don't get into the temperature thing and all of that. I don't, I really don't feel like I need to, but I work in a very controlled room. I don't want like, you know, lights from behind me bouncing off of my monitor or light behind my monitor or, you know, the room to be really just bright or, or real dark. I, I use a really, you know, I, I'm in a mellow room. Um, I even know somebody who you've interviewed, a popular photographer, who at least I heard that he said that he doesn't even work on his photos until the sun goes the backside of the house or it's a cloudy day because he wants a kind of a soft lit room. So in those types of parameters, um, I believe through my research and talking with the different calibration companies and the, their techies and such that there are some general parameters for web, but they're different for print. And what I would say for web would be uh, 2.2 gamma, 6,500 white point, and then 125-ish candelas or brightness or luminance. That's the main one. You know, it's how bright or how dark is your monitor. Monitors can get absurdly bright today. And they can yeah. go all the way down to black. So where is that point? And it's kind of like white's supposed to be white and gray is supposed to be gray and, and black's supposed to be black. And if you have your monitor too dark or too bright, that's that stuff starts getting messed up. Um, but most of the companies will say 120 to 130 brightness or luminance or candelas. And, and so that's web. But so many people, like I'm talking about, you know, 80%, 90% of people who go and they make a print, they're like, why do my prints turn out, you know, too dark and they don't look right? Well, one of the main things is, well, you're looking at this really bright monitor, but prints aren't like light bulbs coming off of a paper. So we have to basically try to simulate what can actually get come out of a machine. So to keep it real simple, my recommendations are the, still the 2.2 gamma, that's your contrast curve. 6,500 white point or whatever your calibrator recommends. And then the main one is I calibrate down to about 65. And that's a pretty darn dark monitor. Um, if I'm in a really 
brighter room for some reason, then I might push it up to 70, maybe 75. Um, if I'm, you know, for some reason working in a little bit darker than usual, I might go down to 60, but it's a dark monitor. Yeah. And as soon as I started doing that, my print started turning out vibrant. No, that so makes this, a lot of was, sense. And that was like 12, 13 years ago that I learned that, I, that one of my first monitors was, was one of those CRT displays. And I don't even think the thing got up to 70 or 80 candelas. So my prints never turned out dark back then. So that's one of the things is monitors are getting brighter and brighter and brighter. So that's that's kind of the thing. And then calibrate, you know, either the X-Rite i1 Display Pro or the Spider. I use the X-Rite equipment and, you know, then your colors are going to be correct. Red's really going to be red, green, blue, etc. And you've gone a long ways then in making a better print. And so much more to be said there, but we got to talk about detail. And I don't want to, <laughs> I could talk about detail for hours. So I, I should probably jump into that next. Well, what about um, maybe before we get into that, like what are some things that you do in the field to maximize uh, the quality data in your raw files? Yeah, that's an excellent, excellent question. Even more important um, in my mind than ever before, especially this year, and especially teaching this workshop with Robert Park in Vegas. We've done we're we're doing our third one in March, and um, it's forcing me to really buckle down into like all the nitty gritty details and do lots of testing. <laughs> A lot of people. I've heard, uh, I'm not going to mention names or anything. I, I really like this person, but there was a popular photographer that, you know how the people, they do everybody's workshops. And so people who do other people's workshops do mine, et cetera. But this uh, person was like, oh, such and such said, you know, you don't even have to bracket for exposure anymore. You can just get it in one shot. And uh, I was like, that's true and not true. So yes, the dynamic range of our cameras, depending on what you're shooting with, has definitely expanded amazingly, especially with the Nikon, you know, and the Sony sensor. Um, but, and, and when they come up, they look really great for display. And, and this is something that um, I have a little free tutorial that I give to people when they buy my tutorials, I just send it to them, but I'm going to make it an actual full tutorial about this because it's shocking. I, I teach post-processing in all of my workshops. Like I'll teach it in the middle of the day or one, sometimes I'll put a whole day aside for just post-processing. We'll do like two hours, take a break, two hours, take a break like that. And uh, people have so many questions about this, but I have a great example of a Canyon where I've shot like nine shots. I didn't need to, I wasn't shooting into the sun or anything. The sun was actually behind us. So the dynamic range was moderate. And I shot it, I think it was either a half or a full stop um, for all nine exposures. So I had everything from severely underexposed to severely overexposed. Now, when making, this is the whole reason why I do this, and I still shoot this way. Um, and this person told me, oh yeah, this other photographer said he laughs when he hears people bracketing for exposure because they don't need to do that anymore. Well, yes, for web, you can get away with that. No problem. But when it comes to like a, an enlargement, everything matters. I mean, it really matters. Little things that, you know, that you can hardly even see end up becoming disasters. 
So what I do is I will shoot a wide range. I mean, I overshoot nine shots, seven <laughs> shots, whatever. I, I just sometimes I use a, a lot of times I'm in aperture priority. So I'll shoot nine, then I'll exposure compensate, shoot nine more or something like that. So I'll end up having 10, 11, 12 exposures to pull from. And what I do is I, um, I will even out the exposures in raw so that they're exactly the same. And this is when I'm going to make a print that I feel is a master print. I want to get every single drop of quality I can in detail, you know, excellent, incredible detail. And I'm talking 96 inch, in, you know, 96 inch images, hundred something images, you know, six feet, seven feet, eight feet. And, and people sometimes thinking, Hey, that's large format. I mean, it, that sounds ridiculous, but it's actually true when you start splitting hairs over all of these things. But when I found out by equalizing the exposures and turning the color noise, all the noise off, all the sharpening off in raw, pulling them into Photoshop in layers, and then going way up on them and evaluating the detail, I started becoming very alarmed. <laughs> far more than I, far more than I ever thought. Yes, the color noise slider just annihilates those color specs. Okay, but here's the thing that. Most people I don't think know yet, and it's starting to get out, but wherever a color pixel has been, you know, like, like you had a blue sky or something and you have these magenta specs and green specs or whatever. Yeah, they get annihilated. They get blurred. And then, you know, the, the detail remains. But the thing is, is when that happens, there is a discrepancy. This is the key phrase here. There's a discrepancy between the adjacent pixels. So every time a noise pixel gets cleaned up and you don't see it when you're looking at your monitor because you're looking at a small, low resolution monitor. But when you're making an enlargement, I'd say like a bit, you know, bigger than 18 inches, you know, like 20 inches, 24 inches, 30, 36, 40, 50, 60, 70. The bigger you go, the more important this becomes. Wherever a color spec has been removed very efficiently, there's a discrepancy in the pixels. There's a lack of cleanliness. I just would call it a graininess, mm -hmm. okay? Yeah, sure. Now, here's yeah, now here's the problem. Wherever that has been eliminated, the color noise is gone, but it's a graininess that when you start to pre-sharpen or capture sharpen your image, that's the first phase before you size up and then you, you know, sharpen for output. Um, it severely limits sharpening, even completely prohibits it. That, and, and you can't imagine when I show this to people, I actually have them come up to my monitor last time, I think it was at Glacier National Park. I had like 12 people and I just said, no, I want you guys to sit. Don't look at the TV, you know, that I was teaching off of. I said, come sit down and look at my monitor and click through the eyeballs and check it out. This exposure that was like super, super bright. They thought it was trash. It was way overexposed when it was taken down to proper exposure and compared with all the other ones. I let them click through and say, which one is the cleanest file? Which one has no, you know, graininess, no color noise. It doesn't even really almost need any color noise, you know, reduced. And when they found the one that was the best, you could not believe how dang bright it was. It was, it was off the charts bright. No one in their right mind would shoot a photo that bright. 
Now, if you've got wind and stuff like that, I understand, you know, you can't have your camera sitting there for three seconds or five seconds, you know, it's going to shake, you're going to get blur. But when you can shoot in ideal conditions, um, again, I bracket, I even out the exposures, I bring them into Photoshop without any noise reduction at all. Then I'll also bring them in with just the color noise removed. And I will zoom up to 100% viewing distance, sometimes 200, 500, you know, whatever. And I, I really look at the differences. And it is incredible how much, even a small amount of noise that's been eliminated limits sharpening. And when you have a pristine file, this is what we teach, you know, from capture all the way to a master print. First thing is capture. When you shoot like maybe 50 ISO or expanded low ISO, 32 ISO, or you just shoot really bright and you take it down and raw and you have a pristinely clean image, it can take an amazing amount of pre-sharpening uh, before you size it up without any artifacting. So, so no weirdness, digitalness, crispiness or anything. Then when you have the, you know, you've sized it up to whatever, you know, let's say a 50 inch print or something like that. The image really has benefited by 20%, 30%, 50%. It's incredible. Sometimes when you size it up, that image does not need really a tremendous amount of sharpening because of the inherent cleanliness. Then the, you know, really careful and specific pre-sharpening or what people call capture sharpening. Mm -hmm. So all that to say, cleaner files make a huge difference. People send me files. I actually do this you know, for a living, um, among other things. People will send me their files, and I'll prep them for gallery print. And sometimes they'll send them to me, and they'll say, yeah, can I make a 50-inch print or 70-inch print or whatever? And I'll evaluate it, and I'll be like, sorry. you know, I mean, you can, but it's going to suffer big time. And then once in a while, I'll get a file. It's like, wow, that's just, you know, so clean. You could go any size you want with it. Nice. And, <laughs> and, and one of the biggest, biggest factors that people underestimate is how much color noise did that image have to begin with that got eliminated because all of those pixels became incongruent in their tonality and their transition of tones. And so when you try to add a little bit of capture sharpening to it. If you're evaluating it right, it just gets grainier and grainier and grainier. So how are you going to sharpen grain? You know, so that's, that's, that is a massive thing. We're able to get, I, I, I just wanted to tell you one last thing about this. This is, this is sort of like the proof. A client sent me a D850 image uh, before the last um, mastering print workshop that we did. And he sent it to me and he said, hey, how big can this be? Uh, he cropped it to where like a third of the photo was gone. Hmm. So I can't, I don't, I don't know what the D850 is megapixel wise, like 42 megapixels or 46 or something like that. But anyway, so like, you know, it's two thirds of the photo is gone. It was a panoramic crop and a monument valley. And he said, how big can I go? I want to do a Lumachrome HD print out of, you know, Nevada art printers. And you say that's the best. And, you know, would you do the, he, he basically did the, the processing, but then he left all the sharpening alone, gave me the raw file. And then I took it from there and got it prepped, you know, as best as possible and went as big as we could. And um, because it was shot clean, 
I could do all of these things that you can do. And I ended up getting, uh, I think it was a seven foot panorama out of it. Jesus. While we were, while we were teaching, I do, we did this workshop twice a year this year. We may only do it once, but it's just an awesome workshop. But, um, he surprised me. He was from Arizona and he surprised me and drove up in the middle of the workshop to meet me. And I never met him in person and to pick up his panorama. So here we're talking about, Hey, you know, you can do this, you can do that. And the class is right there. He comes in, he was like, Hey, you know, I'm such and such. And you know, I'm here to pick up the photo. I was like, Oh my gosh, you know, wow, that's crazy. So Robert's Robert goes in the room, gets it, comes out, shows the class. This thing's a seven foot panorama cropped out, you know, like, like, like I said, one third it's a single, of the frame. It's a single file. Yeah. It's probably was like 15 or 20 megapixels max. Right. Okay. Seven foot print. It looked awesome. I mean, awesome. And um, had a lot of detail in it too. It was the, you know, the bushes and the, the, the monument Valley and, and all of that. It was, it was, there was nothing really close in the foreground, but it was like kind of an infinity shot, but still lots of detail. And um, Robert looked at me and says, yeah, we could have gone eight feet. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but it's because I'm not saying that that's an easy thing to do, but if you're doing these things, especially starting with capture, um, you know, getting pristine quality files as best as you can, then it's amazing what we're able to do today. It's we're having breakthroughs constantly that I think a lot of photographers photographers don't really even hear about. So yeah, so like, what kind of stuff do you do? Like, okay, so you've captured the image, you've paid attention to your color management. Like, what are your kind of like what like general sharpening things that you, do you do to ensure that it can survive a large in, uh, enlargement? <laughs> um, if oh, one of the things I do personally now is like I like when I import into Lightroom, like I turn the sharpening uh -huh. to zero, and, uh -huh. and then like I only do my sharpening over in Photoshop, but I'm sure I could do Good. better things in Photoshop Lots. for sharpening. But I don't, and I don't just sharpen the whole image, like I do. I'm actually doing like I do. I'll do luminosity masks and only pick certain parts of the image yep. to sharpen. Yeah. Um, yep. But I don't know necessarily know that I'm using the right algorithm to sharpen, etc. So, like, what is your kind of general take on to maximize the sharpness? Excellent, awesome question. I I feel very privileged to answer it. It's one of those questions that you know you hate it when you. I list a lot of debates online with scientists about really complex, like cosmology and things like that. And the answer is always, it depends. <laughs> and then they go into, you know, if this, then that, and all of this, that's how it is with sharpening too. If you're dealing with a, you know, a, a dirty file or, you know, out, you know, something shot at F 22 or something like that, there, there's, there's these different things that have to go on, but let's just, at least for the moment, assume a good quality file. Doesn't have to be perfect, but you know, a good quality file. So shot at a low ISO, maybe shot around F eight or F eleven or something like depending that. Depending on your lens. And it, <laughs> depending on your lens, exactly. And then uh, you know, it, it was exposed pretty good or whatever. Okay. Now if we have a pretty clean file, it basically boils down to now, you know, I to give the whole thing away, explain it all would just, again, take hours, but I'll give you the basics. Capture them as clean as you can. Try to get the, you know, the good F-stop 
a lot of times, you know, if you have depth of field issues or, or, you know, you want that flower in focus, but you don't want the stuff in the background. Well, now you have depth of field stuff. Do you really want to sharpen blurry stuff? Right. You know, that gets, that gets challenging when you have some stuff sharp, some stuff blurry, because actually the blurry stuff we want smooth and creamy. Right. And then the, the detailed stuff, we want details. So those, it's really cool because in this class uh, we have, it's in um, Nevada art printers and there's, you know, incredible Lumachromes and Fujiflex prints all over the walls and stuff. Sometimes during the class while like, you know, Robert and I would go back and forth in the teaching, but while he's teaching, I'd be like, so could you tell us how you would sharpen this? Like, I don't even know what I would do to this. You know, it's a real complex, you know, uh, you know, thing, but let's just say you're dealing with land that's in focus and your sky is soft and maybe you have water coming through the scene, you know, that's smooth, like a, long exposure on a water. Yeah, like let's say like a one second or two second exposure on the water or something. Yeah. So so first of all, you you kind of evaluate it by zooming way up on it in raw and look at what kind of color noise are you having to get rid of? And on what kind of a you know, what's it leaving behind, okay? So but a lot of people don't know about or have underestimated or uh, you know, or, or just don't do it right, but capture sharpening. And capture sharpening is basically, I call it now pre-sharpening a lot just to help people understand. It's it's kind of tightening up the image before you size it up. And the old school thought was you don't want to do that because it'll create artifact, you know, artifacts in the image, crispy weirdness or whatever, that when it gets big, it's going to start showing up. That That was true, but for the most part, that's not true today. If you have clean files and you use the right type of capture sharpening and you know how to do it and you got the right monitor uh, and you can actually see the detail really well and that goes into 5K, 4K monitors, forget about it. You want to be in a lower than 4K monitor um, to be able to see this detail. And that's a whole other can of worms. But if you want to go there, we'll do that in a moment. (laughs) But you want to be able to see what you're doing. And, and so, um, I'm glad that you're going into Photoshop. I've preached the other for years. And then what we found out is that about 80% of the images that go into printing labs are over sharpened or have a pre sharpening in them that has done damage that's permanent to the image. So if you've done it in raw and then you imported it and you made it a TIFF or a PSD or whatever file format you like, you know, hopefully not compressed, it's locked in now. So if you do it as a layer, you know, and keep that layer stack um, before you flatten it and send it to the printer or whatever, you can undo it. Or if you have a real custom lab like Nevada Art Printers, you know, Robert can look at your sharpening layer and discard it and do better sharpening or, you know, or turn it down or whatever. Um, but you got this image. If it's clean, you want to pre-sharpen it. And Photoshop is a great place to do it. Um, it's where I do it. And I go to the camera raw filter and I use the same detail tab that you have in Lightroom and you have in camera raw and where it says detail, you know, radius detail, uh, masking and amount. Mm-hmm. And when you have detail to the left and you have radius to the left, I know some people who've been following my work are going to say, oh man, he's saying just the opposite thing that he said a couple <laughs> years ago. <laughs> well, working with Robert has straightened out a couple of things that were wrong. Um, 
but so you know i have to admit that but anyways he, he's he's i think he's the most incredible print genius in the world today so you know i'm, I'm with a phenom to be able to even do this workshop with him but he straightened me out on that. I was told some bad information and I went with it. Like you know, a lot of us, we, we just go with what we've For heard sure. or pick up on YouTube or something. But um, anyway, radius left detail to the left is a, a different type of sharpening. It's a deconvolution sharpening. And what that is, is it's actually trying to unblur your photo. To keep it real simple, it's trying to unblur your photo. Um, the other general type of sharpening, and I'm using this, you know, huge broad term here, is an unsharp mask type of sharpening. Right. Unsharp mask type of sharpening and deconvolution actually approach the image in like completely opposite ways. Um, when you do high pass or unsharp mask or a lot of other kinds of sharpening algorithms under different names, what it's usually doing is it's trying to find all the edges of your image, the micro edges, like around every little grain of sand and rock and stick and twig and everything. And the noise, too. It's trying to find the, <laughs> and the noise. Absolutely. That's the thing. And, um, and then when you turn the amount up, it's creating a halo. Right. You know, so it's making like there's a, it, every edge has a darker side and a lighter side. That's what an edge is. Sometimes it's hard to kind of picture this. So sometimes I need to like show people, but um, but every little stick and twig and horizon line and everything has got a lighter side and a darker side. What's a halo? A halo is where on the darker side, it just darkens a band of pixels. And on the lighter side, it lightens a band of pixels. The radius is like how wide, uh, you know, how many rows of pixels get this band. The, you know, amount slider is how intense the band is. So that you know, that, that halo gets really white and really dark. And zooming back to like a normal viewing distance, uh, like 100% before you size it up and 50% after it's sized up, um, you know, 300 pixels per inch for a print or something, you're not going to see any of that. It's just going to look better and better up to a point and it's going to start looking bad. And so the halos fool our mind into thinking that there is better quality detail there. Everybody in the world would pick, hey, that one was shot with a better lens, that was a worse lens. But it's not, it's actual halo, it's, it's, um, it's an artifact. It's actually something you, you wouldn't want to do to your image, but it does make it look better. Fools our brain into thinking, there's more detail. So that's the unsharp mass type. The deconvolution, which is, by the way, there's some new algorithms coming out, some AI stuff that's, I think we're on the verge of some incredible stuff. Yeah. I mean, just, I mean, it gives me chills. I've seen some things that aren't working yet, but I've seen bits and pieces of what it's doing that just is blowing my mind, like a leap forward in what we're going to be able to start, you know, um, you know, how we're going to be able to make these incredible prints and stuff. But um, the deconvolution it goes into those edges and I don't care what, you know, camera, how sharp your lens is. If you zoom up to like 12,500%, that's Photoshop's limit, 12,500%. And you go up to an edge, like a horizon line, perfectly sharp lens, best f-stop. You're still going to have like, you know, four rows of pixels on the dark end and four rows of pixels on the light end of transition. You're never going to have like, 
one row of pixels that's dark and one row of pixels that's light, and there's no transition zone. No camera can capture detail that well. It, it just, it, the physics will not allow that. Even light going through glass diffuses light, right. you know, it, it, it blurs it. So, so what I was telling you is those rows of pixels, those transitions, this is what sharpening is all about. This is like the guts of sharpening. Uh, the unsharp mask or high pass, different things, approach it by creating a band uh, on the edge that, of lighter and darker. It's like a halo. Deconvolution is doing the opposite. It's trying to undo the blur so that instead of you having, let's say, eight total rows of transition between something dark and something light, which is very typical for a, a decent lens with a standard you know, Nikon or Sony or Canon camera today, um, it's trying to undo the blur so that maybe you have more like uh, uh, six rows of blur okay, or five rows or four rows of blur. It's really trying to undo it. It's, it's very imperfect. It doesn't do a perfect job, but it's, it's actually trying to like pin the halos to the very edge so that it doesn't create halos. And if you use the right type of sharpening, uh, again, in Photoshop as a layer, or if you use smart objects in Photoshop, you can do it to the raw file, um, but as a layer. Um, and you do it with the right viewing distance, which is 100% viewing distance on a lower than 4K monitor. And you take great care in doing this. And, and just what I liked what you said is I try to sharpen some things and not other things. If you bring this into the detailed areas of your image, but omit it from the soft stuff. So I'm talking about some manual masking, like your sky or your waterfall, right. or, you know, maybe a, a slow yeah, shutter speed on like a seascape. I never or, want my blue sky to be sharp, sharpened. <laughs> yeah. I mean, unless, you know, I've never seen a grainy sky before, but right. you know, if it's, if it's a creative effect, that's fine. But that's, you know, I want, I want perfectly clean. And um, so if you get that capture sharpening into those detailed areas, you can actually accentuate the quality by unblurring of that detail to a certain percentage that when you size it up, you have a much, much more, not just more detailed, but the quality of the detail is better. Then when you do your output sharpening, which means, you know, sharpening for whatever you're going to do, you know, output just means whatever you're going to do, like a print or for web or whatever. Um, you don't have to sharpen it as much and you get an overall much better effect. So I'll just back up and keep it simple. Simple as I can. Raw file, no pre-sharpening. Zero, zip, none, no way, Jose. If anybody has questions about that, I have so much I could tell them about. Um, now, the color noise, yeah, get rid of that. But don't sharpen and try to avoid the luminance noise reduction, which is a blurring. Unless you have like a grainy sky or grainy water, you know, and you want to. Uh, but better to do that in Photoshop through a mask. Like you could use the luminance noise reduction on your blue sky. You could use the luminance noise reduction on your water, but then you can capture sharpen all of that nice fine detail. And if you do that very carefully, I mean, some people, they just want a slider, you know, they just want, Hey, just give me a mount 40 points. And that's what they're going to do. The problem is, is if they end up making a print, like say 24 inches on up, they're going to start seeing damage. For sure. 
especially when they get to 30, 36, 40, 50. The bigger you go, the more obvious this damage is and the worse the, the photo looks. Yeah, I've seen so, it firsthand with some of the stuff I've printed the larger. Like it's like, whoa, where did that come from? <laughs> Yeah, I know. The first, what I call an actual master print that I ever made was back in Vegas, back in like 2000, I don't know, five or six. And um, I, I went to just insane OCD levels trying to make this. I wanted to make the perfect, perfect print and I wanted to do everything right. Well, I finally got it to where like an 18 inch print looked perfect, but then I did a 24. And they're 24. All of a sudden, there was, and I had my friend, a great photographer, come over to my house, and I say, "Would you just scrutinize the heck out of this? I mean, anything you see that's wrong, green's a little too strong. Anything, I don't care what it is. Just let's trash this thing. Let's make it as best as possible." So we both scrutinized it and picked it to pieces. And then, so we went to 24 inches. There was all kinds of things that I couldn't see in the. I think it was at 18 inch was the first one. Then 24. Then I went up to 30. And then I did 36 and then I did 40 and then I did 50 and I had to correct and correct and correct and correct. And finally we, we, we made this 50 inch print. And back then I thought 50 was just humongous and uh, I kept it for a long time until somebody saw it and they wanted it. But um, it was just, I could sit there all day long and I couldn't see a single thing wrong with it, but every single step up, I saw a lot of problems that were not apparent at the smaller size. Right. So, so people are like, why are you so, you know, why do you have such a attention to detail? Well, that's the whole reason why, because if I'm doing work for other people, I have to, but if I'm doing work for myself and I want to have something really special that I feel just, you know, pride in and I'm amazed by, then I know what I need to do. And so again, this is the new thing. Robert totally agrees. He's the one who convinced me. I was like, no, man, you gotta, you gotta, pre-sharpen that raw file. And he was like, no, people are messing it up. If you can localize your capture sharpening into the detailed areas, like brush it into certain areas stronger, certain areas not quite as strong, 100% um, viewing distance on the right monitor to where you really see an accentuation of that detail and it looks better. But no, not even minutely, no... Uh, Artifacting, no weirdness, crispiness, digitalness, nothing. If, if you feel like, hey, that might be overdone a little bit, back it off. But if you do that into the detailed areas of your image and you leave it out of the soft areas of your image and maybe even add a little bit of softness to the soft areas, like I said, a little bit of luminance, noise reduction on your clouds or something because maybe there was a little bit of grain there. Then you size it up with the best algorithms. That's another thing. Um, then you go into your sharpening protocol. Hopefully you've made some masks. That's, that's really a good idea, making really careful masks. And then the masks size up too. And then the, your, your, your actual sharpening for output that you'll do you know, before you send it into the printers can go through those masks and not hit the areas you don't want it to hit and then hit the areas you do want it to hit. Um, you can just get incredible you know, results, but there's different kinds of sharpening. There's different kinds of ways to size up. There's different algorithms. There's new ones coming out all the time and people are confused on like what's the best is. So let's talk about, um, upsizing. So me personally, like, I don't know for the, like, I started shooting a Nikon D 800 back in 2011. And, you know, since then I've always had a pretty large 
uh, high megapixel camera, I guess you could say. So like, I, I don't know, whenever I've been finished with my image, like, you know, I send the TIFF file in at whatever the resolution is from the file. Like, what is the point of upsizing to the print lab? Um, printers have a, uh, that's, that's another complex question, but generally speaking, printers print best at certain resolutions. Like if you used a Durst Lambda, that's one of the older machines that printed Fujiflex. There was three of them, the Lambda, the Chromera and the LightJet. It would print at 200 PPI or 400 PPI. That's not the printing resolution. That's the file resolution you send it. So you send it a file that's 200 PPI or you send it a file that's 400 PPI. Inkjet printers today, most of the time it's 300 PPI. That's that's their, you know, the best detail that they can get out of the machine. Maybe some will go to like 360, but but most of them are like around 300 PPI. Mm-hmm. That's how many pixels per inch you're sending to the machine and the machine's turning it into dots and it's printing it onto, you know, paper one way or another. Um, so if you're going to let's your native size of that Nikon is like, I can't remember right now, but it's probably around an 18 inch print, probably 17, 18 inches or something like that at 300 PPI. This mm-hmm. is just, that's what it shoots. Um, it's, you know, 7,000 pixels by 4,000 pixels, whatever it is. And if it's at 300 per inch, which is not adding or taking away any pixels, that's just how many do you have in an inch? Um, so it's not messing with your file. You can change the, you know, the PPI without sizing up or down your image. Um, but if it's like, say 300 PPI, I bring mine all in 300 PPI because all I print is Lumachrome HD out of, you know, Nevada art printers. I believe it's the best photo paper in the world today by far. So, and, and by the time people listen to this podcast, maybe something better will come out, but right now today. So, um, if you're going to make a print that's 24 inches, or let's say 40, what are you going to do? <laughs> so you have the option of lowering your resolution down to 72 pixels per inch or something so that you can make this huge image without adding any pixels to it, but you've lowered the resolution so low, you're, you're now at like m- below monitor resolution. So that's not good. Um, but I know what you're getting at. It's like, oh, do we really want to throw pixels into this image? Like artificial information? Right. Um, what interpolation or upsizing is, keeping it really simple, is it's it's like think of your pixels spreading out like a checkerboard. And now every other pixel is a hole. Then the algorithm looks at the pixels around the hole with different methods and then fills in the hole. Okay. And then it spreads them apart again. And then it fills in the hole, spreads them apart, fills in the hole. Different algorithms. There's all kinds of upsizing algorithms. I test them all. I've spent hundreds of hours this year testing every conceivable algorithm because when I teach, you know, our class, I have to tell people this is the best. And this one might be thought of as the best, but what they're actually doing is not you know, it's, it's not a real algorithm. It's they're adding sharpening or whatever. And I'm assuming so like I, I have to... the, the like simple step of just making the image size larger in Photoshop is not acceptable. Okay. So you go to Photoshop, <laughs> you go to image, image size. Yeah. No, it's acceptable. 
you should pick the right algorithm though. <laughs> um, you go to you go to Photoshop, and I'm not looking at Photoshop. I just do it every day, all day long. So image, image size, and then when you go down to your choices, there you'll have like five or six different choices. You'll have bicubic sharper, bicubic smoother. You'll have bicubic. You'll have um, preserved details one, preserved details 2.0. And people like email me all the time and said, "Oh wow, preserved details 2.0 just came out. It's supposed to be a much better algorithm, like the best in the business." You know, what do you think? So I'll do the testing and I've learned how to do the testing and I don't want to down anything Adobe because I'm a big Adobe advocate, but preserve details 2.0 is hideous. It's, it's hideous. When it comes up, you'll think it looks better, but it's adding a proprietary edge detection sharpening to the upsize that is not ideal. So it's fooling you into thinking, oh, this is a better upsizing algorithm because there's sharpening built into it. And that's the problem with the tests. You have to size everything up, then you have to take everything to ideal sharpness, then evaluate the quality of the detail. And the best algorithm in Photoshop is still Bicubic Smoother. Very important, important to choose that when sizing up. So if you're going to make a 50 inch print, you would just, and you know, you, you call up Robert and you say, Hey, I want to make one of those Lumachromes Mark was telling me about what PPI should it be? He'll say 300. Well, I want to make a 50 inch, you know, so you just highlight 50 inch hit enter and it's going to boom. It's going to size up to a 50 inch print at 300 PPI doing that method, filling in, filling in, filling in by cubic smoother is one of the best algorithms in the world. It's not the best, but it's one of the best. Do you think, um, do a lot of print, like if I sent in just a native, you know, file to to a print lab, are they just going to do that automatically before they print at a large format or? A custom lab will do that for you. Usually for a pretty big upcharge, Nevada art printer, Nevada art printers will do that for you for like almost nothing. Right. And they are, you know, phenomenal. If you just say, do whatever you do and do it as best as you can do it, um, they're going to give you something that that almost no one in the world can um, obtain. And I also do that service too. A lot of people send it to me and then I send it to Nevada art printers or whatever. Um, they even advocate leaving all of the sharpening, all of it on a layer. So when you go into Photoshop, you go into Photoshop unsharpened <laughs> and then you duplicate your layer I mean, no, then you work on your photo till it's done. Then you duplicate the layer and then you do all your sharp, you know, you size it up and do all your sharpening, but you leave one layer, not sharp. And then that way they can correct, fix, or improve whatever you've done. Only custom labs will do that. Very, very, I mean, I, 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 I have to print whatever people tell me to print. So they'll say, Hey, I want a metal print or I want to, you know, whatever. And I want to use this lab. I'll try to steer them a better direction if I can, but I have to do what they tell me to do. So um, I do send the stuff off to all these places. Nobody does what Robert does. Nobody like, you know, will sharpen your image and get it perfect. They'll say that. They'll say, oh, the machine will do a better job than you can do or its algorithm is better or whatever. But um, nothing beats knowing what you're doing and doing the best things. And I will, I will just plug one thing. The Lanxos, L-A-N-C-Z-O-S, upsizing algorithm is the best in the world today for retaining real detail as it sizes up. If you compare it to any of the Adobe algorithms and any other algorithm on the planet, if you know how to do the tests, um, it's the best overall. But this year, 
people started bringing to attention to Robert and myself this Topaz uh, AI gigapixel thing. And I'm skeptical every time. People are like, ah, this is a new thing, but I have to test it. Well, there's something going on with this to where little chunks of the photo, I'm talking about less than probably 10% or 20% of the photo, maybe 20%. Um, it's doing something that is not like any sharpening method or any upsizing algorithm on the planet. And it's incredible. I mean, just phenomenal. But again, it is never all over the image. It's only in a couple of these blotchy spots. You can't control it. There's no yeah. control on it. And so, so the AI, you know, it takes like half hour to an hour for this thing to upsize your photo where Photoshop, you know, do it in 30 seconds. Yeah, I just did one it, while it, we were talking just to see what it looked like. And it took like <laughs> 10 seconds or something. So, <laughs> so this is for people who are OCD about quality. This is what I'm now teaching. And it's new to this newest workshop because I've been testing and Robert's been testing it. And he said the same thing. He says, it's just totally out of control. It's, it's, um, you know, when it does its thing, it's it's amazing, but it only does it in a very small percentage of the photo. In other areas, it it ruins or makes it look horrible. But what I'm starting to do is I'm starting to size up one using Lanxos, and then I will size up another one to the same size, like a 70-inch print or something. And then I'll size one up with the AI. I put them on top of each other's layers. And then what I'll do is I'll look around and see where the AI has beat the tar out of the Lanxos, and I will brush in some of that better detail in some of those areas so that I'm making use of multiple algorithms for upsizing. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. And then after I sandwich <laughs> that together, then I go into, you know, sharpening protocol. So I guess one of the things that, I mean, so I was um, I was just in Kauai and I was actually hanging out with Aaron Feinberg. Yeah, Aaron's um, awesome, man. In his, in it, yeah, and it's in his gallery and, you know, he was showing me some of his big prints and I'm, you know... It looked really good, but he was, you know, as a photographer, I could see some um, sharpening artifacts that were created. And he's, we were talking like he, you know, he is. Some we won't put that on the air, though. <laughs> oh, no, he, he was okay. telling me. Like, oh, no, he's so he, laid back. He, like, he's so laid back. Yeah. He's remastered all the files since, since then. Like the stuff he shows in the gallery looks different than what he uh, gives to people now. But mm -hmm. um but the point I'm trying to make, though, is like the images still looked freaking amazing. Mm -hmm. um, and it was really hard to I mean, I, I was I feel like I was being a little bit nitpicky mm -hmm. to find stuff wrong with the images. So I guess my question is, like, do you think that the average consumer of prints um, can really notice a lot of these changes or details? Um, I would say by and large, no. Unless you are marketing yourself as a, you know, high-end fine art, this is the best as it can be type of photographer. If you're just, you know, showing good work, uh, you know, 95% of the purchasers of photography will come in. I've studied the demographics and stuff. It's usually women. They're usually, you know, and depending on, you know, where, but in most cases, it's a woman, um, who like 80%, 75, 80%. That's like, they just want a blue 
you know, a picture in the room that gives them a sense of peace. They're not going to go and stick their nose on the print. Anytime, <laughs> anytime a salesperson <laughs> sees somebody sticking their nose on the print, they know it's a photographer and they may even say, get the heck out of here <laughs> because they know that person's not buying anything. Now, right. having said that, so if you're a marketer of photography, of actually selling photography, Many people say, do you really need to do all that? You know, no, you don't really need to do all that. You can, you could take like the ultimate and shave it down so that it's faster, so that it meets your production needs, you know, so you're not spending all day on a photo or something. Okay. Um, if you're selling it for $10,000, I would spend a couple of days on that photo. If I'm selling it for $350 then you know, size it up and throw some smart sharpening on it or something. But, um, but if you are going into the higher end, which most people aren't, um, but if you're saying, hey, you know, this is the best photo paper in the world and this is these are the best quality materials and 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 your you know, your prices at least somewhat reflect that, then I think that it does to certain degree matter. It does matter if you're doing a bad job, but I'm talking about an excellent job. Well, man, that's a great segue to the last part of the podcast. Um who else do you think would be great to to hear on the podcast? Like, who has inspired you that you think people need to hear more of? Oh, man, that's always such a tough question because I hate, hate, hate excluding people. <laughs> um, I've, I've had so many people inspire me. And then when I try to make lists or, you know, put something on like Facebook and say, yeah, these people are also don't remember that one. It's like, oh, no, I forgot well, to you know, mention that just one. Give me, uh, and, just give me two. Know. Yeah. Um, well, I always, I always bring up Mark Adamus, but I don't think he's ever, has he ever been podcasted? I mean, it's like, no, and I actually, um, um, I actually asked him and he, he, yeah, I could show you. He's, he's just not a social media guy. Yeah. I don't know. It was interesting. Let's all just put it there. Okay. Yeah. I've met him and I, I had a very, pleasurable encounter with him and he he refers a lot of people to me to my workshops and stuff my number one inspiration overall as a landscape photography because i was coming onto the scene really seriously like you know 2004 5 ish is adamus and i believe that he has been and still is uh the uh, the forerunner in landscape photography um although the market's getting really saturated it's hard to find anybody now but um and it's just, he, he was just doing work that was like, what in the world? Like you got waves crashing at you and a sun star and, you know, and then now that's kind of the becoming the norm. So it's harder and harder to, you know, hit those, you know, just phenomenal, everything comes together kind of moments and stuff. He was just real radical, um, which appealed to me, but, but I've had a, but it was funny is even though he, it was really humongous inspiration, like Ken Duncan, that guy inspired me as a human being. He's a spiritual, ethical, just a awesome humanitarian type of guy. It was, you know, doing wonderful, beautiful work and stuff. And I, I love that guy, but I have a lot of inspirations that people wouldn't even like think were my inspirations, you know, like it was like, your work doesn't look like theirs, but, um, I know you've already had some of these guys on. I mean, Ryan Dyer, you know, Alex Noriega. I was I was preaching Alex Noriega like years, a couple of years at least before people start really taking notice of him. I remember telling a really popular photographer, oh, Alex's work is so awesome. And, and they're like, what? Really? You think so? And then like, like you know, a couple of years later, he wins the landscape photographer of the year right. thing or whatever, you know. 
Um, I've loved how he uh, puts, and again, I, you know, when you do this as long as I have, and, and I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back or anything, but when you've been doing this like, you know, 18, 14 hours a day, every day for over a decade, you start getting to the point where it's not about a person. It's more about a piece uh-huh. than it is, I think, a person. Um, so I don't have like this one person that I just love. I just, I, but he's awesome. Ryan, uh, Ryan's artistic and he's just straightforward in his, you know, tutorials, oh, absolutely. you know, I, this is what I do. And I, I love that. I'm, I'm in your camp, by the way, in terms of be creative, but you know, let people know this is creativity. Don't pawn it off as reality. I'm kind of like in that, that camp, but as far as the actual podcast, who would I, I've listened to your podcast and I've listened to some great people and most of the people that, you know, that I would suggest get Ken Duncan on there. See if you could get him on there from Australia. That would be totally different. People are like, who's this guy? <laughs> um, cool. There's a guy, there's a guy, um, a black and white guy. His name was David Burdeny that his black and white stuff a long time ago just blew my mind. And I never did go, you know, heavily into the black and white realm, but those guys, they really have to, you know, master tonality. They really got to be. Yeah. It's a whole different thing, man. (laughs) Yeah. They've, they've got to understand light. So, um, Christopher Burke, I'm I'm going out of the box here. I, you know, the other day I was thinking about him so much and about my attention to detail. I thought, you know, I'm going to call him and I did email him years back. Um, but I'm, I'm just going to call him cause I just want to tell him, you know, kind of like, thank you. And he's, I know he's you know, like probably 60 to 70 or whatever. Yeah. Those, those are, those are the main, I mean, I could keep on going. You, you've already, no, I think that's a solid, solid list. Um, I mean, I, 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 I'm with you on Alex. Like he's definitely, um, one of my favorite photographers. Like I actually got to spend, Oh, probably almost a full day shooting with him this fall in Colorado here. And, um, just, you know, mostly just talking. We rode in the car and we're just talking Uh and he's such a great dude too. Like super down to earth. Like one of the most genuinely nice guys you'll ever meet. Um, and his work is like, I don't know. There's just something about it, man. It's, it blows my mind. (laughs) Oh yeah. Me too. For me, it is. The, the pieces are so subtle, but they are powerful oh, yeah. at the same time. It's like, and, that, and that's, that sounds like a contradiction, powerful subtlety, you know, but that's, that's what I see in a lot of his work. I, I'm not following yeah, really anybody sure. like watching their photos every day. I just don't, I don't have the time anymore. I wish I did. I just kind of look here and there or when it pops up, you know, then maybe sometimes I'll go over and go, Oh, wow. Wow. That person's done all of that or whatever. But it's funny because um, I've met him several times, hung out with him and stuff, and uh, Ryan and stuff. And these guys that I am a high-wired, passionate kind of, you know, I'm trying to learn not to be type A. I'm trying to learn to be type B and mellow out and stuff. But <laughs> I, I'm just like, I don't know. I was born, I came out of the womb, pedal to the metal. And I, I'm trying to learn not to be like that all the time. But these guys <laughs> that I hang out with that I, or that I love – when I hang out with them, they're the opposite personality as me. And I think you, you yeah. seem like a laid back guy. So Alex For is sure. just like, you know, one gear, just mellow, just super nice, genuine, mellow, just, you know, and uh, Ryan's real mellow. Those guys, they, they're the type of kind of personality. Like if you were talking to them, you'd be, you might just underestimate them 
you know, um, but they're, Oh, for sure. But they have to be fiercely competitive internally, like where you don't really necessarily see it because man, oh, I mean, what the heck are they doing? You know, I, I, right. I, I know some of it, but you know, um, <laughs> I wish I could give you yeah, more. Um, Oh, so yeah, out of the box, maybe, maybe bring up Christopher Burkett, maybe look into him. He's, he's very amazing. Um, in what he does, he's a large format photographer and I, yeah, I'm you're the- not the first person, uh, to recommend him. I can't remember who else recommended him, but yeah, he's definitely on the list. I thought, and I may have got the story wrong because it was well over a decade ago, but I thought I, I checked his bio the other day and it didn't say anything, but I thought in the OPB show, he had lost his sight and he got a sight oh, back. Yeah. And I know that he was like a monk or something, but his passion for photography and whatever decided he didn't want to do that. And um, but there was something about his site. And I'm, I'm going to ask him when I when I give him a call here pretty soon. I think I'm going to because I know he probably won't be around a long time. But um, uh, it was like he got his site back and then he's just obsessed with details. And that doesn't mean all interesting. This, it doesn't mean all of his photos are little things, but he's just obsessed with detail. And I think he has like this extra appreciation for it, but his prints are, whoo wee, they're analog, um, but they're as good as they can possibly get analog. Um, oh, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, but I will. I will say this is probably good for the audience to know. Digital, when done right, I believe is eclipsing analog, and then that's a very controversial statement. But when you go back to this whole you know, detail, uh, you know, capturing clean and clean files, mastering the capture sharpening, um, using the very best upsizing algorithms, then masking in the, you know, various masterful sharpening protocol that you throw on the enlargement, and then maybe some type of a, a detail simulation or grain simulation to enhance the detailed areas, et cetera. When you do all of these things as best as we can possibly do them today, and there's some new methods. I mean, Robert Park has actually pioneered some things I don't think anyone in the world is doing. It's taking it like another 10% farther or whatever. When you add this up, it's crazy what we're, I mean, I have had photos, again, like I said, 20, 30 inches or 20 or 30 megapixels. The people who used to shoot large format Ask me, hey, is that large format? So yeah. it's, I think it's a really exciting time, um, even though we have a very. No, I think you're market. right for sure. Well, dude, we've been at this for like almost two hours. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love so it. So cool, man. And I, I got to go eat dinner still. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to ask you some questions, but we don't have the time. But I, I know you're, uh, you're really a mountaineer and a real well, yeah, outdoors. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. So you're still climbing and, and like my dad's a, you know, world-class mountaineer he's 80 years old and he's, he's like, he has 220 major summits under his belt and he started at age 30. And so I, you know, I was always in the mountains with him and I think you had a kind of a outdoor background too, but what I saw stood sure. out to me is uh, the mountaineering and then also um, the, the leave no trace, the, uh, you know, conservation and stuff like that. That you're really you're really high on that so is that something yeah that absolutely doing and yeah i mean um just uh this september i completed um a huge goal that i've had my whole life which is to climb the highest 100 mountains in colorado they're called the centennials um, oh wow 
So I finished that on Labor Day. Congratulations! That's I know something about. My dad made me climb some of these, uh, not those ones, but the ones in the Pacific Northwest. And yeah, that that is no joke. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not like uh, it's not quite the same as you know, like the Himalayas or the or things like that. But um, it's definitely um, there's definitely a few of those climbs that are pretty legit um, in terms of how difficult they are and things like that. So yeah, it was a, it are you going to fun... keep climbing? I'm sure I will. Um, I don't, I haven't set any new goals yet just because, um, I mean, I don't know, like I kind of want to take some time to focus more on my photography. Um, but kind of like, I guess I have some projects in mind in terms of like getting, shots of some of those mountains like in really yeah. in different light so i'm kind yeah. of going to focus more on that for now but it will involve a lot of it seems that the market has started to expand again recently more you know people getting back into climbing mountains and getting really amazing mountain shots it seems... yeah for sure definitely mm-hmm. um i mean or it's climbing up part way or whatever you know right yeah there's not there's not a ton of people in Colorado that are doing what I do. I know of a couple, um, I know of a couple guys that have done similar stuff, but it's, there's not a lot. <laughs> have you watched Meru? I have not. Okay. You have to watch Meru. <laughs> Meru. How do you spell that? Meru. M-E-R-U. My dad, who's watched every mountain climbing oh, okay. movie ever made a hundred times said it's the best mountaineering movie ever made it's a documentary it's a true story and uh, i'll I'll just leave it at that it's it's it is a absolute must everybody in the world needs to see that movie once it is a a documentary it's incredible and you will it'll inspire you uh, just seeing the beauty too so yeah i want to tell you if you do keep climbing just be really careful man you know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> be, be conservative in the way you climb be smart in the way you climb because man my dad wrote a book uh, about his climbing and he had so many dang close calls i mean for sure know, it's just not it's not worth it to lose your life um although i would that wouldn't stop me from climbing if that's what i wanted to do yeah yeah no i actually used to write an article every year that um summarized and analyzed all of the deaths in mountaineering in colorado um, so I, yeah, I'm painfully aware of the dangers and I'm always very careful. So <laughs> do, you, do you do a little bit of rock? You know, um, not a ton. I mean, obviously I've had to do some rock climbing to, to get to the tops of some of these summits, but I don't, yeah. Like if someone was like, do you want to lead this five ten? I'd be like, no, I'm good. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. How about for photography? Do you ever like say, oh, I got to get myself to that spot that no one's shot that, I don't think, or, you know, that would be really incredible. I mean, I've definitely done that. Some of that for mountain climbing, like I did, um, I shot sunrise from the top of a 13 here called turret, which isn't a super difficult climb, but it's definitely like, you know, in the dark, um, not, yeah. I mean, but yeah, I shot sun sunrise from the top of that, which was pretty insane. <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's cool when you have those skills because 
you can do some of the things that other people wouldn't do and get some like new things. I do this on the Oregon coast a lot on the, the, the big cliffs on the Southern Oregon coast. I'll like climb and down into places where, you know, I, I doubt. You probably shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, I probably shouldn't. But if you have good rock and you, you know, use the three point stance technique and you just use a lot of care and really care, you know, then I, I don't mind. I, I love to actually do it. Yeah. I think um, I've heard some stories then, of you like, like, uh, kayaking like in eagle creek and shit like that before <laughs> oh yeah i i do some pretty i took a fall there too i climbed up a cliff on the inside of punch bowl falls yeah and i and i almost there, there's probably you know 20 times i've almost died doing photography but um like you reading the book about you know what can i learn from the mistakes these other people have made when i make a mistake that's serious. I always analyze it. And, um, I was, I was climbing up. I love like going and put my camera where like no one shot this over here. There's no way. And then the people like, Whoa, you know, geez, I've never seen that angle or whatever. I love that. If I can think of something like that, uh, Metlock Falls shooting it from the inside. I was just going to say, you have a shot, um, from the top of (laughs) Metlock Falls, um, that I don't know that, Maybe one or two other people has that shot. Like, it's pretty cool. I have some inside the bowl shots from the peak of spring that no one, I don't want to, I don't want to mean it with pride, but no one I'm aware of has, except for the extreme kayakers that have gone off the 110 foot waterfall. Um, And it was no joke getting in there. It took me, I think, four years of failed attempts to get in there. But I knew it's like I I wanted to get inside that bowl. Not not during summer. You can get in there. Well, now it's burned up and they won't let you in there. But but um, you could get in there when the water levels are low. But when the water levels are high, uh, you can rappel down in there. But then how are you going to get out? You better be an extreme kayaker, you know. So um, there's been a few things that I just, you know, when I put my body there, some places in the southwest, too. And every year I try to find some new place, too, where it's like I could say with confidence, I I don't know if, you know, hardly anybody's ever been here before, maybe a Native American in 1890 or something. Um, But there's such a if it if it's not for just that reason, but it's also epic. Oh, my God. Gosh. Yeah, I mean, there's this I mean, it's, feeling that you feel. It's pretty amazing. Like, like when I did that um, sunrise shot from the top of turret, like, you know, there's obviously there's no one else around, um, and it was insane light. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. like I will never forget. I mean, I had I actually didn't sleep sleep the night before, like, because I actually shot the Perseid meteor shower from the saddle. So like, yeah, I was like delirious almost. It was, it was insane. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm trying in the Southwest. This was one of the questions that we were considering, but you know, where, where are there new places to shoot? There's, they're still all over the place. Someone asked me the other day, it's like, has everything in the Southwest been done? And I said, no, actually almost nothing has been done in the Southwest. I mean, if you just take one of those colossal best drives in the Southwest and you say, what's up there? Yeah. You know, what's so up, what's over there? The people don't know. There's about. so much and, I keep and I'm stumbling way. on things. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. The, the, the very special, pl- I mean, you and I are, I, I have heard your podcast and you and I are like that too. I'm, I'm into no disclosure when it comes to the really, what I call sacred places, you yeah. know, if it's horseshoe bend. Yeah. I'll tell people, <laughs> but, but, um, if it's something that's just, you know, I, I don't want to drive traffic to those areas, but 
that I, I don't know. I want to be an encouragement to you because you have the skills and you're a photographer, but also an encouragement to other people who might listen to this to, you know, try to go off the beaten path and try to find something special, yeah. you know, sit, sit on Google earth for, you know, six or seven hours and try to think, okay, you know, I wonder if there's something on the Oregon coast that hasn't been done or, or something like that, you know, that almost no one's been to. That's, uh, that's what I really love to do. Yeah, no, I'm, <clears throat> I'm with you there. Like there's here, even here in Colorado, like there's, um, close to me, there's this huge wilderness area that, um, not a ton of people shoot it. So, um, I, I have a lot of stuff in the back of my head, like, oh, I could do that. I could do that. It's just a matter of finding the time. <laughs> That's the hard part. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, dude, this has been, yeah. this has been awesome. I just thank you so much for coming back on the podcast and. Sh- oh, thank you. Yeah. Man. It's, it's a pleasure. And, and no, really, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity and I love talking with any fellow photographer or, you know, shares the same passions and stuff. So I love your work and I love your, I, I, I don't want to put myself into a, a political camp uh, and I'm not talking about politics, but I also like a lot of your ideas about photography well, too. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I'll keep that real generic, but um, yeah. Right on. Uh, yeah. But anyways, it's, I, I, I feel very privileged to be able to be on this and and thank you very much and success to you and 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 stay safe and um yeah we'll have to hook up sometime if you're ever in florida let me know yeah and but but i'm all over the place i drove through colorado and you know stuff like that so i'd like to be cool to hang up have a beer or something well i want to thank uh mark for taking the time to visit with us on the podcast it's always great to catch up with him to see what he's up to and i feel like every time we chat I learned something new. So if you enjoyed our talk, there's a lot more over on Patreon. I think it's like 30, 35 more minutes worth of conversation. So check that out. Next week, we sit down with Gavin Hardcastle for some comedic relief. Gavin and I had a killer conversation about Flickr, vlogging, and lots more. He's probably one of the funniest guys I've ever talked to on the podcast. So I think uh, it's going to be a good one. I wanted to thank our newest patrons, uh, Laurie Berenson, for her generous $20 a month pledge, and uh, David Kingham for his ongoing support and increased contribution. You guys are awesome. Well, in 2019, I am really hoping to get the word out about the podcast even more, and I need your help. Obviously, the best way to do that is through uh, iTunes reviews and you know social media things like that. Um, but if you know, if you've made it this far into the podcast, you're probably what I would call a super fan. Um, so please leave a five star review on iTunes. Tell us what you like about the podcast and then send me a direct message on Instagram or your platform of choice. Um, and let me know that you left the review and, uh, I'll try to thank you in some way. Thanks to, uh, Jared Hills for his really insightful and thoughtful five star review. He said, quote, I'm not a landscape photographer. I would even hesitate to call myself a photographer in general. I do not recall how I found out about the show, but I'm glad that I did. The discussions go far beyond what most photography shows are. It's more about methods, inspiration, anecdotes, and philosophy. Not the typical gear talk of most shows. I will say that this show opened my eyes to varied artists and their work. Having an episode come once a week has served as an inspiration to me. Wow, thanks, Jared. Um, I can't wait to see uh, what kind of images you create in 2019. Uh, Thank you so much for your awesome review. I really appreciate it. Well, uh, feel free to follow us on social media and our Facebook group for the podcast. Uh, Just search for Matt Payne Photography or F-Stop, collaborate, and listen. Thanks for listening.